A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Ari Stock in memory of his brother Gershi, Gershem Yeshaya ben Avram Olavashalom. And this episode is about London Jewry. It's actually part two. I had part one uh, uh, not so long ago, a couple of months ago, I believe. Um, and it was very popular. We got some great feedback. And I decided that it's appropriate to continue with it. I think this um, uh, story of London Jewry is quite fascinating. And um, we ended off last time um about with the expulsion uh, in 1290, the Edict of Expulsion by King Edward, and uh, the Jews are no longer in England at that point. And it happens to be in the news now, I just saw in the news, either the British government or the church or both, I'm not sure which, they have an intention to apologize for the, 12, the year 1290 expulsion. So, um, you know, I guess uh, an apology is due at some point. Um, so it's appropriate now in the news, so uh, um, the, therefore we could continue speaking about uh, London. We'll pick up from there, from, uh, uh, from, from the expulsion. So for several hundred years, there's not really any Jewish community in uh, organized, official Jewish community. There are some Jews that are living there secretly. There are some Jewish visitors or businessmen. There are uh, occasional uh, stories of Jews being there, but uh, undercover Definitely not in any official capacity. Um, there are exceptional cases of Jews vis- visiting England. There's the, an interesting story of Jacob Barnett, who is a lecturer at Oxford in the 1600s, an Italian Jew. He's brought there at some point, and he he uh, is, is is living there, and uh, and uh, he's convinced to convert or decides to convert, and then he uh, goes against that uh, decision and decides to leave town, and they arrest him, and he's released, and a whole uh, uh, interesting story of how a, a Jew is, is uh, you know, not able to live as a Jew, that's in the early 1600s, you're talking about um, almost, you know, about 400 years, uh, excuse me, uh, over 300 years after the uh, original expulsion. So, what happens is, is that the, the real first Jews to resettle in England is even before the Resettlement officially begins with uh, Oliver Cromwell, which I'll get to in a second. 
but there it happens because of one of the uh, most impactful events in Jewish history, which is the Spanish expulsion, the Alhambra decree, which expels all non-Catholics from Spain in 1492, and that creates the Spanish diaspora. And we can talk forever about the Spanish diaspora, but one of the more interesting quirks of Jewish history is that some of them eventually end up in England, in conversos, as they're known, or new Christians, uh, or all kinds of other names uh, that they're referred to as. But uh, there are uh, J- Spanish Jews living under um, Christian identities who end up in England, and they're the first Jews to settle in England. And that happens following the Spanish expulsion. So you have, um, again, from 1290 until after the, the Spanish expulsion is over two centuries later, so there's really you know, basically no, no record of any Jew living in England, um, almost none. There's, you know, there's Jews who convert to Christianity are allowed to live in, in some sort of home for them in, in London. That's an interesting story also. Um, but they're, they're, fish, you know, they're converts to the church. And then you have, and then you have these conversos who, who, uh, who live in England. They live there secretly, and part of the story of the Spanish Jewish diaspora is the fact that they're the first Jewish integrationists. Uh, they're the first Jews who, who integrate into Christian society. Many of them becoming completely Christian. Many of them living with a double identity. Many of them who were merchants and businessmen and travelers. This is also the age of exploration in the New World. So many of them live as a Jew openly in some countries, and then when they live in other countries, they live under a, a Christian identity. So that's a fascinating story of uh, the Spanish diaspora, especially since we assume that the first uh, Jewish assimilation takes place in Germany in the 17th and 18th centuries, when really the Spanish Jewish diaspora precedes them in a much more interesting story in the 15th century. 15th and 16th centuries, I should rather. So that's that's the first Jews who settle in England, but again, they're not in any official capacity, and also they're not in an official Jewish community with an official synagogue. None of that exists yet. So they, what we have is the slow uh, um, reacceptance of Jews into England, which takes place over several years in the 1650s. And that is... Uh, a, that's that's a fascinating story. I find it one of the most interesting stories of um, of uh, British Jewish history in general, and even of, of Jewish history. Uh, Oliver Cromwell and the uh, petitions of Menashe ben uh, Israel ben Yisrael, who's also you know all these amazing characters who come into play. Um, the the it, beca- it becomes quite a quite a tale. Um, so they have the. Uh, this unofficial reacceptance of Jews into England, uh, which never be doesn't become official. They don't rescind the the original edict of expulsion. Cromwell does not, uh, you know, legislate that Jews are allowed to live in England. It's basically they kind of look the other way, and it's in an unofficial capacity, which actually does good for the Jewish community because uh, Cromwell is is the uh, Lord Protector or Dictator or whatever you want to call him. Uh, he is there until, until um, you know, and eventually uh, the monarchy is reinstated. Is at the time of the British Civil War. 
And when Charles II becomes the king again later on, uh, he's not able to repeal this piece of non-legislation because it's an unofficial decree. So it's kind of providential for the Jewish community because if it had been an official decree, an official legislation of Cromwell, then we can probably speculate that Charles would have uh, you know, repealed that legislation as, 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 as part of the uh, legacy of, of, of the rebellion against the monarchy, of the Civil War. Um, and because it was unofficial, because it was just looking the other way, and also because of other factors, Charles in his exile owed a lot to some Jewish financiers and stuff, which is also a common theme in Jewish history. So he did not repeal any of this uh, non-legislation because it was an unofficial capacity. But on the other hand, it's, it does become a bit strange because the development of the British Jewish community over the next couple of centuries is all unofficial, uh, literally, for for next two centuries. Uh, they... The, uh, the Edict of Expulsion is only officially rescinded many years later, and officially the, the, uh, uh, the Jews, uh, British Jews become emancipated many years later. Um, so they, they have this very unofficial status for quite a bit of time. So the question is, what are Cromwell's motives? Why does he decide to allow Jews to resettle in England? And that, is, that becomes the big story, and it becomes one of the biggest questions of British Jewish history. Um, one of the most fascinating questions. In other words, this expulsion was in, in effect, and it would have remained that way for, you know, who knows how long, for many more centuries, and would have changed a lot of, of, of Jewish history had England not have had a Jewish community throughout the centuries. And, and there's this all of a sudden, and it seems to be quite sudden, a little bit, you know, some of it was gradual, but uh, all of a sudden Cromwell decides to allow them in. So what, what were his motives? Why did he do that? So some of it was religious. Uh, they thought that they would be able to convert the Jews. Uh, you know, also there was this kind of like, I guess, messianic belief that the British, um, either the British themselves are from the Ten Lost Tribes, or again, this is the 17th century when the New World, there's all kinds of legends about the New World, and the Ten Lost Tribes are there, and it has to do with the Second Coming, and, and all kinds of religious uh, uh, uh um, reasons that would necessitate the uh, Jews to be allowed back into England. It was primarily economic. Um, this is right after the British Civil War, and this has to be seen in the context of British history. The British Civil War, the execution of Charles I, uh, which is like the end of the, mo the monarchy, and you have to understand how Oliver Cromwell in general is seen uh, in the big scheme of things of, the, of British history and European history. Is he a hero? Is he a villain? Um, is he seen by many as in different different ways? Someone who, who uh, killed the king, who got rid of the monarchy, so is, is that his legacy? Or did he create the First Republic? Um, uh, everyone, everyone, everyone actually sees it through their own lens. It's interesting. Leon Trotsky saw him as a class revolutionary because he got rid of the aristocracy and the and the or the king. I don't know if he got rid of the aristocracy. He was a member of the aristocracy, but um, uh, he got rid of the king. Um, um, Winston Churchill saw him as a military dictator. So everyone, everyone sees that in their way. The uh, the 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 so the, he's he's. He's seen till today as one of the most popular people in British history and uh, as a hero and statues and everything. Um, so, yeah, on the other hand, he 
did not like Catholics too much, and he oversaw what seems to be a mass murder, possibly even of genocidal proportions of Catholics in in uh, in uh, in Ireland, and uh, and and uh, in general, there was blood in, in England of those days. There was the British sentiment was anti-Catholic. That's because of the post-Reformation and the Church of England and all that. In fact, the Jews received emancipation in the 19th century. It was following the emancipation of the Catholics. That Catholics were able to receive equal rights and citizenship. So it followed, therefore, that if even the Catholics got it, then the Jews would get it too. So there was, in general, there was a lot of uh, anti-Catholic discrimination in England at the time. So there's there's this legacy of Cromwell. Of course, Jews love Cromwell because he was the one who allowed the resettlement of Jews in England. So there's, like I said, there was the Civil War, and that damaged the economy. So he wanted to reboost the economy, and throughout Jewish history, uh, Jews are always seen as businessmen, merchants, cosmopolitan, international connections. Um, there was also this growing rivalry with the Netherlands, um, the centrality of of Amsterdam in the uh, in the uh, in the age of of of, of uh, it's post already after the age of exploration, but this is in the settlement of the New World and and the uh, getting the riches of the New World. And the Dutch have the greatest merchant marine fleet in the world, and uh, Amsterdam's the Dutch East India Company, the West India Company, and the first stock market. And there's this this growing uh, the biggest port in mainland Europe. Uh, and uh, the Jews are playing a major role in the building of the Amsterdam economy. And, of course, the Jews there are all Spanish Jews. They're descendants of, of the ones who were expelled, of conversos, new Christians. Um, and there's this rivalry with the Netherlands. And, they, you know, the Cromwell wants to build London as the center of commerce and of the, sea, you know, the navy, of the seas. And, therefore, he wants to attract the Dutch-Spanish Jews to London um, to play that role in building up the London Stock Exchange and, and, uh, and that, that investment, and to use the Spanish-Dutch Jews, their connection with the Spanish Main uh, of what's today the countries of South America. Then it was called the Spanish Main um, because the colonies of, of, uh, of, of, of the Netherlands and of England were very, very small and insignificant, paled in insignificance compared to Spain. They were mainly islands um, under under uh, under uh, Cromwell. The British take control of Jamaica, which also is a major role in both in British history but also in Jewish British history. Because in Jamaica, Jews are allowed to settle; they're all, they're all, they're allowed to receive land titles and full equal rights, citizenship. Uh, and the Jews of Jamaica become the most prominent and wealthiest Jews in the world at the time. The Jewish community in Jamaica becomes extremely prominent. There's also the role of the Jewish pirates in Jamaica, which I've mentioned before, and um, and their attempts at uh, you know taking the Spanish gold uh, ships on the high seas. And there's 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 the role of the Jews in Jamaica and its effect on the Jewish resettlement in England because it all happens at the same time in the early 1650s. Um, so there's also these winds of change in England in general, religious tolerance and, and anti-Catholicism is replacing anti-Semitism following the Reformation. So there's less anti-Semitism and there's all kinds of streams of thought to allow uh, the Jewish resettlement. That's on the Cromwell side of the story. On the other side of the Jewish side of the story, there's this fascinating personality named Menashe ben Yisrael, Menashe ben Israel 
who is, uh, again, uh, can't cover him and his whole life story in this episode because he definitely deserves his own, um, even though the famous Rembrandt painting is most probably of his son, not of him, but there are other paintings of his. And he was a uh, originally a Spanish Jew, Portuguese uh, Jew from a new, new Christian converso family, and he uh, settles in the Netherlands, and he becomes uh, one of the most uh, influential Jews in the world in the uh, in the 17th century. Um, he's a rabbi. He owns a printing press. He's a writer, a thinker, a, a, a an activist, a politician, uh, everything that you want, everything that you can imagine, and a very colorful personality, very charismatic as well. Um, with great connections uh, all over the world um, with this, you know, Spanish, Spanish Jewish uh, diaspora, and he has his own motives to getting the Jews resettled in England. Um, also, somewhat messianic motives. Surprisingly enough, um, he feels that uh, with Jews settling the New World, so we have, if we have the the Jewish diaspora, and there's a lot of messianic notions in the centuries following the Spanish expulsion. And some saw it and, and saw the justification for it in, in, in uh, messianic terms that uh, that there would be a, a if the Jewish diaspora spe- spreads to literally the four corners of the globe as in the prophecy of you know all the prophets spoke about it uh, that th- this way it would enable the Messiah to come the redemption to come because one the redemption can only arrive once the Diaspora had been spread to the four corners of the globe, and now in the age of exploration, that new parts of the world were being explored and settled, and there were members of the of the Spanish Jewish diaspora who were settling in these new colonies. So now they're literally sp- spreading to all corners of the world. So we have to find those isolated few countries that had expelled Jews in Europe, such as England, that still did not allow Jews, and they were the only places in the world now left that did not have Jews, and if we convince them to resettle Jews there, then the Jews will have achieved that they're in the four corners of the world, and the, the redemption can now come. So he had his own messianic motives for getting the Jews back into England. He wrote a pamphlet in that regard to to convince them and, and the contributions of the Jewish people. It's, it's an interesting uh, statement in that pamphlet is his assessment of Polish Jewry at the time. And this is right at the end of the golden age of Polish Jewry because this is right after the Tach V'Tat Chmelniski massacres. So it's just a couple of years later in the 1650s. So the, the, uh, the uh, but it's, you know, it's right after the Polish Jews had been in all their glory. And he writes how the Polish kingdom had invited the Jews to come settle there and how they had built the economy of the Polish kingdom to make it the most successful kingdom in all of Europe at the time and the contribution that Polish Jews made to that. So it's great to have Jews in your, in your country. So the, he's invited by Cromwell as this prominent uh, Dutch-Spanish Jew uh, with connections in the Netherlands, the Amsterdam Jewish community. He's invited by Cromwell on an official visit of a Jew to England, uh, uh, to a state visit to negotiate the resettlement of Jews. And there's the Whitehall Conference, uh, when which Menashe ben Israel and his whole delegation attends with the pros and the cons, uh, the voices against and, and pro coming, resettling the Jews in England. Um, and uh, and uh, and and Menashe ben Israel stays in England uh, for two years, uh, from 1655 to 1657, to negotiate this whole process of resettling the Jews there. 
and that's and that becomes the first major step in that regard. Side tidbit of his absence from Amsterdam is the Menashe ben Israel, who was very educated in the sciences and philosophy, and you know today we would consider him controversial even. So he had a student in his yeshiva in Amsterdam, and that student's name was Benedict or Baruch Spinoza, and and he was a very you know, brilliant and philosophically inclined student of, of his in Amsterdam. And it was during his absence from Amsterdam that the Amsterdam Jewish community puts the excommunication on Spinoza, the now famous excommunication on Spinoza, uh, because of his his heretical uh, uh, thoughts and teachings. And that was while Menashe ben Israel was in London. And one can always wonder and speculate if the influential and charismatic Menashe ben Israel had been in Amsterdam when, during that time, would the community have excommunicated Spinoza and with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, with the uh, uh, approval of his teacher Menashe ben Israel or not? And of course, that's just a fun speculation to do around Thursday night chalant. Um, either way, getting back to Menashe ben Israel and Cromwell, so another thing takes place during that same exact time, which makes the question of resettlement of Jews in England even more fascinating. Uh, because England is fighting wars against the Dutch, they're fighting wars against Spain. And in 1656, there's a de- declaration of war against Spain. And there's this arrest of a Spanish Jew named Antonio Rodriguez Robles. And he was a new Christian. And he was a trader, a merchant between uh, England and the New World, and 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 he's arrested. So his property is seized, being that he's a citizen of a country that England is at war with. They're at war with Spain, and he's Spanish, but he's a new Christian. He's a converso. So Robles petitions the court for the return of his seized property on the account of his being Jewish rather than Spanish, which is absolutely a fascinating petition, because we assume that Jewish nationalism is born in the 19th century because nationalism does not exist in the 17th century, anywhere, not Jewish, not non-Jewish. And it beca- it's a totally 19th century invention. It doesn't exist beforehand. And here Robles is, is asking the court for something amazing. He's telling them, I'm not Spanish. I'm Jewish, right? And, and you know, citizenship is not really, again, nationalism doesn't exist in the modern term. He, what he's saying is that his, his secret religious identity and his, his, is not to be confused with his public identity as a Christian, and hence, which is his Spanish identity. He's saying that his secret Jewish identity is different than his public Christian identity, and his public Christian identity is what's really Spanish, but that's not his real identity. His real identity is Jewish, and there, and hence it's not Spanish, because Spanish means Catholic. You cannot be anything other than Catholic if you're Spanish. And since he's Jewish, he can't really be, be considered Spanish. So the question is, who is a Jew, and what is this fellow Robles? What is he really? And maybe we can consider him English, because you know, and that and that contributes to the dialogue of whether Jews should be resettled in England or not. Uh, so this is this this becomes a very you know a part, part of the whole discussion, As, and and uh, eventually there's never a public decision or public legislation that's made about it. It's rather they decide to look the other way. 
a Jewish community is allowed to exist publicly, and some of these conversos come out of the closet, as it were. Some of them actually move to England from Amsterdam, from Spain, from other places in Europe, and from the New World, and a Jewish community slowly starts to emerge in London in the late 1600s. As a result, even after Charles II returns to the throne, and of course Cromwell is posthumously uh, executed. He dies in 1658 and buried in Westminster Abbey, and then when the crown is restored, uh, a, a couple of years later, so King Charles II makes a triumphant return, the royalists uh, are back in power in England, and they uh, exhume uh, um, uh, uh, Cromwell's body, and he's executed again, even though he's dead, which is an interesting thing, and he's you know, buried, I think, in several places, kind of like some of the graves here in Israel. And he's, uh, and he, uh, uh, so, you know, and then his, and then his, his, uh, his, his legacy becomes a matter of dispute afterwards. But the Jewish question is kind of settled already because the Jewish community is starting to emerge in London. There's even a Jew named Solomon de Medina, who is the first Jew to be knighted in British history in the year 1700, not long after. And there's both a Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewish congregations emerge in London in the late 1600s. So there's this, this uh, you know, this, this emergence of Jewish life very quickly. And there's only several tens of families, only 30, 40 families, who, Jewish families who are in London at this time. Almost all of them Sephardic, almost all of them Spanish Jews who had either come from Spain or, or, or had been living in London secretly or came primarily from Amsterdam. And they become, they're very wealthy, very prominent in finance and commerce, and very, very prominent in London society. Um, and that and that continues. Now, before I get back to London Jewish life, I just want to mention quickly about the stages of emancipation. And we have to literally jump centuries to achieve that. It's only in 1858, uh, uh, 200 years later, that emancipation... Uh, full emancipation is achieved. Literally 200 years have to pass. Um, and it's also the, the year, the same year, that a change in the law in regards to the, the oath of office to Parliament. Lionel de Rothschild uh, becomes the first practicing Jew to become a member of the British Parliament. Uh, and they have to change the law because on, on my good faith or on my good word, I forget, I forget the exact uh, language of the of the of the uh, of the oath of office on my good faith as a Christian was the uh, was the official uh, uh, was the official uh, wording of the oath of office and that was changed just so Lionel de Rothschild can take the oath of office without having to say on my good faith as a Christian um, there had been another Jew who was already the the in, in, in member of Parliament Benjamin Disraeli but who was born a Jew but at the age of twelve he was baptized. So he did not have any issue with the oath. So it was changed only for Rothschild in 1858. There had been similar oaths that had been rescinded years earlier for membership as a broker on the stock exchange and, and in the business world that had come early before the political world, that, those changes in, in that same oath of On My Faith as a Christian. Um, 1868, only 10 years later, Benjamin Disraeli becomes the Prime Minister of England. So he's the first... You know, technically Jewish uh, by birth, but he was not uh, Jewish. He was Christian. Uh, he was he was only uh, Jewish by birth. A few years later, in 1884, Baron Nathan Rothschild, who was the son of Lionel Rothschild, becomes the first practicing Jew as the member of the House of Lords. Again, first practicing Jew. Disraeli was already a member of the House of Lords, 
And his son Walter was actually the recipient of the Balfour Declaration two years following his father's passing. So by 1882, which is when the great immigration begins from the Jews of Eastern Europe to uh, England, like everywhere else in the world. So if we freeze that moment, there's 46,000 Jews living in England uh, in 1882. And by 1890, Jewish emancipation and integration into British life was complete in every sense of the word. Um, so that's that's the process of integration. We take a step back. Um, so we have the Sephardic Jewish community. We have also German Jewish immigration in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Also achieved great wealth, emancipation, and then integration into uh, uh, Jew- uh, British society. Um, and um, and uh, and then we go to the institutions that they build. There's the Bevis Marks uh, Synagogue, which was world famous and becomes the first uh, major synagogue. There is an Ashkenazic congregation also, which later becomes the great synagogue of London, whose chief rabbis become the chief rabbis of England, of the British Empire, of the Commonwealth, of the United Kingdom, whatever you want to call it. And uh, they, that's that's Ashkenazic, that's German-Jewish, um, and there's some quite some quite prominent and famous rabbis who are perhaps uh, get to soon, but I want to focus on the the Bevis Marx uh, synagogue, the first synagogue, that's a Sephardic, Spanish-Portuguese. They already start in the 1600s. They enter the current building in 1701, and it's the oldest still-functioning synagogue continuously since its founding in Europe. Uh, very prominent, very influential uh, throughout uh, Jewish history in the last several centuries, and and also a gorgeous building, a magnificent structure, was never destroyed. It was not destroyed during World War II, unlike the great synagogue of, uh, of that, like the Ashkenazic one, which I mentioned, which was destroyed during the London Blitz, the, the, the uh, German Air Force, the Luftwaffe uh, bombing of London in 1941. Um, but the Bevis Mark synagogue was the center of the Sephardic uh, Jewish life in England, and to a certain extent of the Western world in general, uh, along with the, the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam and other prominent uh, Jewish communities, the Sephardic Jewish communities in the New World. Um, it influenced, uh, it in, Bevis Marx had an influence across the British Empire, had strong connections with the Jewish community in Jamaica, Barbados, the, the uh, Jewish community in India, the, the wealthy uh, uh, Sephardic Jews of Baghdad, who, who migrated to India and later to Shanghai, were strongly connected to the Bevis Mark Synagogue as well. In fact, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Sassoon Synagogue in Shanghai, I think it was called again, the, it's not in my notes, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it's the Ohel Moshe, Ohel something or another, um, was modeled on the Bevis Marks uh, uh, Synagogue, so it, it had influence all over the world. And its most prominent members were, of course, Moses Montefiore, whose, whose seat there is, is cordoned off, roped off till today, and it's only used on very prominent, very, very official uh, occasions where uh, uh, um, you know, important visitors who come to the Bevis Mark Synagogue are allowed to use his seat. Um, Isaac Disraeli, Benjamin Disraeli's father, was a member of the, uh, was also you know, a very aristocratic uh, member of British, of London society in general. He leaves the Bevis Mark Synagogue uh, after a dispute with the with the leadership, and that's what leads him to complete assimilation into British society and to the baptism of his children. Um, there was great rabbis of the Bevis Mark Synagogue and of the Sephardic London Jewish community. First, 
Rabbi David Nieto, and later his son Isaac Nieto, which was a Italian Sephardic rabbinical family, uh, very prominent and influential in London Jewish life. Later on, other other rabbis as well. The rabbis were always referred to as the Chachamim, as was the Sephardic custom. And Rabbi David Nieto was a he was a, you know a, a controversial figure. He he wrote a a a, uh, a very defensive of Jewish tradition. A a, a book called uh, Kuzari Sheni and Matidan. It was called Kuzari Sheni. And it was written in Hebrew and Spanish, and it was similar to the Kuzari of Rabbi Yudal Levi, the medieval uh, defense of the uh, the the uh, the uh, Jewish belief system. So he wrote it as a defense of the oral law, of the Teresh Peh, and against the Karaites and against other, you know, d- d- uh, anyone who else disputed the the veracity, the truth, the authenticity of the oral law, and um, and defense of the Talmud. And he became a, a very, you know, very important work uh, of Jewish faith. He fought against Sabbatian heresy. Uh, he wrote all kinds of books in that regard, also. So he was very prominent in his literary output as well. It's interesting that the current rabbi in the Bevis Mark Synagogue is both Ashkenazi and American. So he's not British or Sephardic. He's a descendant of Rav Lazar Silver. In, in the United States, his name is Rabbi Shalom Morris, and he's doing great work there as well. Um, so Moses Montefiore becomes one of the most uh, 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 famous Jews in Jewish history, the most prominent and influential Jew of the 19th century. I think we need to have a episode devoted just to Moses Montefiore um, and his influence. He's, of course, knighted by Queen Victoria in 1837, shortly after her ascension to the throne. And then you have the Rothschild era, Nathan Rothschild, who's the brother-in-law of Montefiore, and, um, and he establishes his business in 1798 in Manchester, but of course soon comes and becomes a London bank. He was sent there by his father, the founder of the Rothschild dynasty, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, and Nathan Rothschild goes on to fund Wellington in the Napoleonic Wars. He, he's the, he, he becomes the ones who... He, he, funds the British government's investment in the Suez Canal. He funds Cecil Rhodes in the colonization of Africa. And, uh, you know, Nathan Rothschild and and Montefiore define British Jewry in the 19th century. One, a German Jew. One, a Sephardic Jew. Um, you know, one in Bevis Marx and one in the Great Synagogue. And they, they're financiers. Uh, the London Stock Exchange, banking, finance, uh, they and the titles, and the Victorian England. Uh, queen Victoria, of course, is the queen for 63 years uh, during the 19th century. And the next stage, the part three, which we'll hopefully get to sooner than the uh, than the space between part one and two, hopefully be quicker, um, we'll, we'll have to discuss uh, uh, British Jewry, London Jewry in the 19th century, the Victorian era, and especially the, these these two families, or really two individuals, the Rothschilds, which is a family, and Montefiore as an individual, and uh, and how that fits in with the Victorian era and the emancipation uh, of, of British Jewry at that time. And I would like to get to also talk about, uh, in part three, the, the chief rabbis of the British Empire in the 19th century, who were some 18th and 19th century, who were some prominent individuals, mainly from Germany, who served in the Great Synagogue. And that will lead us all the way to the immigration of Eastern European Jews in the late 19th century and the, uh, the, uh, 
the uh, decisive turn of, Jew- of Jewish history in England as a result of their immigration. So this was uh, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, and sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at A Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.